You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. According to the National Crime Information Center, there are over 5,700 cases of murdered and missing Indigenous women in the U.S. According to the NativeWomen'sWilderness.com, only 116 of those cases are reported with the U.S. Department of Justice's database. Alaska, the U.S.'s last frontier, holds 229, nearly a quarter of those cases, according to data for indigenousjustice.com. 19-year-old Alaska native Sonia Ivanov is just one of those MMIWs from Alaska, and this story is hers. Some names have been changed. Sonia Dora Nitkuk Ivanov was born April 13, 1984. She was one of six kids. She had one sister and four brothers. Sonia was born Alaska Native, belonging to the Inupiaq community. She grew up in the small Alaskan village called Unalakleet. When I say small, I mean small. In the 2020 census, the population of Unalakleet was 765. It's a beautiful village that sits along Alaska's west coast. It's placed at the barrier split of the Bering Sea's Norton Sound and the mouth of the Unalakleet River. 637 of Unalakleet's 765 residents, that's 83% of the population, identified as Native American or Alaska Native in the 2020 census, just as Sonia was. According to the blog Behind the Blue Wall, Sonia liked green tea, salt and vinegar chips, and sometimes would make late night food runs to Tesoro, which is a convenience store in her area. Sonia's mom describes her as goofy and says she loved to laugh. Quote, she always put a spark in people's lives. Sonia's brother echoes this saying, quote, to have her aura around you, if you were feeling down and she came around, she always tried to find a way to uplift your spirits, end quote. In high school, Sonia played basketball, and she was really well-known for her performance within the surrounding Norton Sound communities. This love of basketball continued when Sonia moved to Nome after she turned 18 with her best friend. They moved there because Nome was a little bit bigger than Unalakleet and had some better opportunities for Sonia and her friend. Nome is a small Alaskan outpost. In 2003, when Sonia was living there and her case takes place, It had 3,000 residents. 
Today, it has about 10,000. So again, Gnome was not huge, but it was much bigger than Unilaclete. And again, it had more opportunity for Sonia to work and make money. She was hoping to save up for college in Hawaii. Her plan to find work in Nome was successful, and she got a job at the Norton Sound Regional Hospital. What's more about Nome is that it is about 537 miles northwest of Anchorage, and it's a very tight-knit community. Its crime rate is half that of Alaska's state average. With that, the police department only had seven total officers, and this actually plays into the case. That takes us to Monday, August 11th, 2003. Sonia and T, the best friend and now also roommate that she moved to Nome with, went to a friend's house. According to T, the two played board games and just hung out with their friends that evening. It's also indicated in the Oxygen documentary that I have linked in the show notes that Sonia had a beer while at that friend's house. But she didn't drink a lot because she really wasn't feeling that well. And sometime between midnight and 1 a.m., Sonia left that friend's house and she left on foot. This would have put her walking home down Bering Street to 3rd Avenue, which is the street that she lived off of. T, on the other hand, stayed behind and slept over at the friend's house where they had been hanging out. She had to be up early. And in fact, she woke up around 5 a.m. to return home and get ready for work. Only when T made it back home, Sonia was not there. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. She knew Sonia wasn't scheduled to work or anything like that, so she sort of figured, okay, I'm sure I'll hear from her later on. He went onward to work and she did finally start to get worried as the day ticked by and she hadn't heard from Sonia. Remember, she returned home at 5 a.m., so Sonia not being there without her knowing she was going to be somewhere else, was very odd. Sonia's sister echoes this and expresses that it was not like Sonia at all. Quote, she wasn't one to just go off and not tell anybody where she was going, what she was going to do. She always let people know. The next day, August 12th at 5 p.m., T made a missing persons report. The police launched into a search for Sonia, readied with a current photo of her. Three hours into the search, around 8.30 p.m., one of the volunteers spots something through the brush of an old gold mining road that leads to an area that's referred to as Dredge 5. It's a body, and known PD officer Byron Redburn confirmed it was Sonia. The Anchorage Daily News and the Justice for Native Women blog and the Gnome Nugget refer to where she was found as a gravel pit. Sonia's body was naked besides one black sock. Sexual assault and homicide were apparent, but the cause of death wasn't. It appeared Sonia had been struck in the face, but not necessarily a fatal strike. She was lying on her stomach, but her back didn't show much, not even scratches. This indicated that she was not dragged there while naked. Officer Redburn recalls tearfully that it appeared Sonia was, quote, a beautiful young lady that had just been discarded, end quote. As officers searched the area, they found tire tracks that had rolled through some of Sonia's blood. 
A couple of other notes are that Sonia was the first martyr in two and a half years. And again, Nome had a small police department with only seven officers. They didn't have the bandwidth to work Sonia's case and still be able to patrol, protect, and serve Nome. With that, they called in the Alaska Bureau of Investigation for assistance. The criminologists couldn't get there until the next day, though, so officers had to literally stand guard and protect the scene. This was done by the chief officer and Officer Matt Owens. They kept watch all through the night. Officer Redburn takes on the duty of notifying the family. T, of course, was notified as well and was beside herself. Soon thereafter, criminologists with the Alaska Bureau of Investigation arrives at the scene. Carrie describes her role as a criminologist, kind of like that of a CSI. She says it's her job to take pictures, sketch the scene, and mark items of evidence. A criminologist's goal is, quote, to document and collect, end quote. As law enforcement, including Carrie, investigate the scene, a theory develops. Given the tire tracks and blood found in those tire tracks, it was theorized that the perpetrator murdered Sonia on that desolate road and left her there for a large amount of time, large enough for the blood to pool there. Then she was moved while still clothed to the area that she was found. The perpetrator then stripped Sonia of her clothing and took off with them, driving through the blood, U-turning at the end of the dead-end road, and then driving away from the area completely. This theory is developed primarily because of those tire tracks, Sonia's blood, and the fact that she had no scratches on her that indicated being dragged there while naked. An injury that Carrie does notice is a large bruise on Sonia's face. This indicates to law enforcement that there was definitely a struggle. They decide to go ahead and do some tape lifts off Sonia's body just to see if they could find any other physical evidence on Sonia that might lead them to the perpetrator. That's when they lift Sonia's head and find the gunshot wound. It's clear that this gunshot wound is the cause of death, but the shell casing was nowhere to be found, nonetheless the gun that she was murdered with. Carrie says, quote, the very lack of evidence means that someone who did commit this crime, you know, has knowledge of how not to leave evidence, end quote. Basically, the lack of evidence is evidence in and of itself. It is, but of course, they still had to look at what evidence they did have at the scene that was physical. They went ahead and took casts of the tire tracks, and they found one more small but important piece of evidence. It was an automotive paint transfer that was on a branch that hung over into the road. They think that it had clearly scratched the perpetrator's car. It was blue. Now investigators knew what color vehicle to look for, and they had tire track casts to use to match and identify that vehicle with as well they were able to determine that this vehicle had three of the same tire and one that was different. The paint transfer onto the branch was somewhat higher than a small car would likely be, so they knew they were looking for a bigger vehicle, maybe a truck or an SUV specifically. Officers began to search for a vehicle that might match those descriptions, but while that search is going on, Officer Redburn meets to speak with T, the roommate and best friend. And now for a word from one of our sponsors. Did you know that physical symptoms like teeth grinding, digestive issues, and headaches can be indicators of stress? Let's not forget about insomnia or oversleeping, undereating, or overeating too. There are so many physical symptoms that can be related to stress. Unfortunately, stress is a common occurrence in most of our lives. I know for me, managing a nine to five 
with a podcast, while I'm extremely grateful every day, can be really stressful. During times of stress, those physical symptoms I was just talking about in my life usually manifest in terms of oversleeping and definitely overeating. And let's remember, stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind your life away, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. In my life, therapy and BetterHelp specifically have been amazing at helping me build the coping skills I need during those times of stress. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, live chat, and phone options. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also a more affordable option than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. The Murder Diaries podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash murder diaries. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash murder diaries. T says she couldn't imagine who would want to hurt Sonia, but she tells them all about Sonia and shares some photos with Officer Redburn. In one of the photos, he notices a very large, deep bruise on Sonia's upper arm. T says, oh yeah, she got that bruise when she was messing around and wrestling with our friend, Donnie. Detectives question this friendship with Donnie a little bit further, and they find out that he was known to be into Sonia. He had a thing for her. And well, between that and the bruise, that was enough for them to bring Donnie in for some questioning. He was cooperative, and he said that he was 73 miles away when Sonia was murdered hunting. This was confirmed by the friends that Donnie was out hunting with, but what was also confirmed was that Donnie stayed in a separate shack from his friends. This meant that Donnie could have snuck out and driven the 73 miles back to Nome, murdered Sonia, and then driven back to the hunting camp. With that, investigators wanted to look even further into him. They get a search warrant for Donnie's home. And it's a good thing they did because they found some articles of interest. First was a pair of shoes. They were white with bloodstains all over them. Then they noticed that Donnie drove a blue truck. That matched the description of what they were looking for. And inside the truck, there were rifles. And one of the rifles had a blood stain on the butt of it. Inside the bed of the truck, they found a blue tarp covered in blood. And they also found blood on the tires after spraying them with fluorescein. But we also have to acknowledge that this is a man who has a confirmed alibi of hunting. And with hunting comes blood. You know, it would make sense there would be blood found in his vehicle and on his rifle and everything that he took with him hunting. It's absolutely a possibility, and you're not wrong for acknowledging that. However, Carrie, who we know was part of that search as the criminologist, says in an interview, quote, when you have blood on a firearm and you have blood in the wheel well of your truck, then you start to think, okay, maybe this person had something to do with the crime, end quote. It was just too much for them not to keep looking into Donnie. They keep questioning him, and Donnie's response was that of claiming innocence. He said that the blood from the truck was from a porcupine he killed, and he ran over a rabbit, and that's how he got blood on his tires. He said the rabbit didn't die, so then he went and crushed it to put it out of its misery, and that's how the blood got on his shoes. Carrie said that she didn't believe Donnie's story, and quote, it was too far-fetched to be true. 
They really feel like they know Donnie did it or had something to do with Sonia's murder. Then the lab results come in. None of the blood that they collected from Donnie's truck was human. The paint from his truck, it did not match the paint found on the branch at the scene. I want to note that retired Alaska Attorney General Rick Svobodny said, quote, if we're talking about the 1960s or 70s, Donnie would be in jail for the death of Sonia Ivanov today. That's how serious this, quote, red herring was in this case. More information came in when they got Sonia's autopsy results. This autopsy documented that Sonia had a 22 caliber bullet lodged in her brain. Law enforcement theorized then that she was shot at very close range, quote, almost contact to the back of her head execution style. Nothing was found under Sonia's fingernails that they could pull DNA from, and the autopsy report didn't find signs of SA despite her being found naked with one sock. No transfer of bodily fluids was there to grab DNA from, at least. The tape lifts that I mentioned earlier didn't garner evidence either. There weren't any hair or fibers that could lead them anywhere. This led law enforcement to believe, well, maybe if we find Sonia's clothing, we can find more clues as to what happened that night. This led them to Gnome's landfill. But after more than four weeks after Sonia's murder, they ended their landfill search after no success of finding her clothing or any other evidence for that matter. It did feel like they might have been hitting a wall in the case, but then a new lead came in that changed everything. Two local girls, sisters, saw and spoke with Sonia as she was outside walking home that night. Sonia only stopped for a moment to speak with them very briefly and then went on walking. One of the sisters was just a sophomore at the local high school and had seen Sonia recently in a city basketball game. So she recognized her and did really admire Sonia. And that's why Sonia ended up stopping and speaking with them. And that also makes this eyewitness account more uh, believable, given the fact that it's something like these women would remember. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like a random right. day. Oh, yeah. No. And Sonia was really well known for her basketball. So the fact that she was still in the Norton Sound area and playing for the city, like people local went to these games and watched her. Yeah, she was a bit of a local legend. Like they, they said it in all documentaries, like she was known. I'm like, oh, wow. As Sonia walked away from the sisters, they say that at the corner of the street, she stopped to speak with someone through an open window of a police vehicle, a Ford Expedition specifically. And then she got in the front passenger side. What's more is the police vehicle with Sonia in the passenger seat did not head west towards her home. It went straight. That was the direction towards the highway that takes you to the mining road that she was found on. Seeing Sonia get in that police car and turn in a direction that was not towards her home made the girls feel at ease and it prompted them to check the time. Just so happened that that time was 1.26 a.m. August 11th. Now the question remained, which of the seven police officers was driving that police car? And was it even one of those seven police officers? Knowing that there weren't any police cars stolen that night, it was almost certain it was one of those seven police officers. It should be noted that Gnome officers only have their squad cars when they are on duty. This helped them be able to narrow it down from the original seven because they all they needed to do was check out who was on duty that night. And there were only two officers on duty. One we'll call Brad and the other Matthew. They were both known as solid officers and had been helping work Sonia's case. 
As for Brad, he grew up in Nome and he came from a really well-respected family in the area. He had worked in the local jail for a little while and he had even refereed some of Sonia's City League basketball games. As for Matthew, he was newer to Nome. He had moved there from Florida about three years prior to Sonia's murder. He was a, quote, firearms expert and actually trained other officers on weapon use. Aside from both Brad and Matthew knowing how to use firearms, both of them would be fully capable and knowledgeable of how not to leave evidence behind at a crime scene. So things aren't looking good for either of them. Both of these officers had training on evidence gathering. They know what to be aware of, to look for when they're gathering evidence at a scene. It could easily explain why there wasn't much more at the scene besides Sonia and the paint transfer that was clearly an accident the perpetrator might not have even noticed or known about. Rick Sovodny, the retired attorney general, says, quote, not all that stuff's on CSI end quote, indicating that there's much more to evidence gathering than the public even knows. Of course, Brad and Matthew both say they never saw Sonia that night. Knowing that most likely one of them was lying, Nome PD handed the case over fully to the Alaska State Police. And now for a word from one of our podcast friends. If you're looking for a new true crime podcast that will verify what you've always thought about false prophets and phony pastors, then look no further than Seven Deadly Sinners, a podcast about preachers, priests, cult leaders, masquerading as gurus, self-help con artists, and most chilling, leaders who have committed horrific crimes. Crimes against the people who trust them the most. What if the same preacher who captures your heart kidnaps your child? What if the priest serving you communion used those same hands to dispose of a corpse? Heinous crimes committed right under your nose. Host Rachel O'Brien has toured the world doing stand-up and is channeling her same passion for comedy into true crime with a solid amount of risk-taking along the way. Exposing these cults, murderous preachers, and scheming televangelists and uncovering shady networks hiding in plain sight. If you want to hear your host go to the scene of the crime, boots on the ground, and knock on a cult leader's door, she did that. Interview people closest to the case and deep dive into unsolved crimes with never-before-heard tips and information? Then Seven Deadly Sinners is the show for you. Listen to Seven Deadly Sinners on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Investigator Eric Burroughs was one of those state police on the case now. He wanted to figure out, of course, where both Brad and Matthew were that early morning on August 11th at 1.26 a.m. Matt says he was at a bar and he was just making sure that it closed on time and everybody left orderly, basically. But guess what? No one places him at that bar until 2 a.m. Brad says he was at the station working on some paperwork. That's when both Brad and Matthew are asked to go to Anchorage for a lie detector test. They agree. But before they could leave... On September 24th, 2003, one of the police department's three expeditions, Squad Car 321, was stolen from the parking lot. This is obviously a huge deal because there is very sensitive equipment in these squad cars, including shotguns. As officers were searching for Squad Car 321, that's when Matthew comes on the police radio saying that he has found the car and he's currently in a shootout with the perpetrator. Officer Redburn raced to Matt's position, That position just happened to be an old mining facility about a quarter mile away from where they had found Sonia's body. 
when Officer Redburn arrived, the squad car was just sitting there. No one was in sight. Then Matt appears. He had taken cover during the shootout. Unfortunately, Matt had very little information about the suspect. He didn't have a physical description or even information on which way the perpetrator went as they left the scene. Law enforcement searches for the suspect, but to no avail. This whole scenario is completely and utterly absurd. Alaska State Police and Gnomes Police would definitely agree with you. So, of course, they started searching the patrol car to see if they could piece this situation together with some evidence. And in that patrol car, they found an envelope. And in that envelope, they found Sonia's Gnome Rec Center pass. Officer Redburn says that this pass was something that no one that wasn't working the case would have known had been missing. So with that, it really made investigators think whoever took this car was the murderer for sure. The state criminologist at the scene, which was a different one than Carrie, who has mentioned before, said, quote, well, let's see if they left you a note, end quote. Officer Redburn said that he responded, quote, fat chance. But they took a second look in the envelope. And guess what? the state criminologist found a note inside that envelope as well. The note is as follows. Pigs, I hate cops. I hate every one of you. Sonia was just a person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do not know her. As you can see, it was easy for me to take your pig keys right there. It was not her fault. She thought I was a pig and shit just happened. She was just a person and I wanted to see if I could that night. Every one of you should be more careful. I watch every move you make. You leave me alone and I will leave you alone. I will also shoot you in the head if you get close, end quote. Retired attorney general says, quote, you don't typically steal a police car and leave a note to say I'm the killer in another crime unless police are getting close, end quote. A criminal profiler analyzed this letter and they have the following notes. They believed that the use of Sonia's name showed a familiarity with her. They believed that this was a person who wanted to kill that night And so they did. The profiler was also sure that this person may not be afraid to come after anybody who comes after them. Finally, the profiler believes that the use of pigs was an effort to throw law enforcement off and take the heat off the lead that maybe the murderer was one of Gnome's own police officers. Furthermore, the profiler believed that this effort to throw investigators off this track that it was a police officer made it more obvious that it was indeed a police officer. The note from the car, along with Sonia's rec center ID, were sent to be tested for DNA and fingerprints. But unfortunately, nothing was discovered. Just like when they had found Sonia's body, not a trace of the murderer was left behind. Remember, a while back, I mentioned that Brad and Matthew were both called to Anchorage for polygraph tests. Well, Brad passed his polygraph test, and his computer log time also proved his alibi of being at the station that night. Matthew, on the other hand, he never went to Anchorage. He said he was too traumatized after the shootout to make it. That being said, Brad had been cleared, so Matt was still becoming the sole focus at this point of the investigation, and him not taking his polygraph test did not look great. What's more is that Matt really had been centered within the investigation the whole time. Now, this isn't exactly shocking since he's one of only seven police officers, but it does make state investigator Burroughs wonder. Matt had taken the missing persons report. Matt had watched over the crime scene that night. And Matt was the one that had found the stolen squad car. 
On October 25th, 2003, Matthew Owens was arrested for the murder of Sonia Ivanov. After the news of Matt's arrest, women started coming forward as sexual assault victims of him. They all have similar stories. They state that Matthew would pick them up and force them into sexual acts in his squad car. And then when he was done, he would drop them off and basically say, say what you want. No one's going to believe you because I'm a police officer and you're just a drunk girl. Yeah, it's that bad. While these sexual assaults shared the similarities I just listed, they differed in that each one showed an escalation, an increase in violence, and an increase in the threats made. This led them to believe that Matt could have easily escalated into murder, as gruesome as that sounds, and that may have been exactly what happened with Sonia. They believe that after picking Sonia up that night, Matthew tried to force her into sex. Sonia says no, and he murdered her for that. As easy as it feels to believe that Matt was guilty, there were issues in the case against Matt. First was Sonia was shot with a 22 caliber, not the 45 Glock that Matt owned. And what about that blue paint on the branch? Matt's squad car wasn't blue, and neither were any of the other squad cars. Matt's personal vehicles weren't blue either. Investigators decide, okay, we've got to get back to trying to find a vehicle with three different tires that's blue, and it's a truck or an SUV. Investigator Burroughs said that there were a surprising amount of vehicles in Nome with all kinds of tire variations, especially for being such a small town. They literally grassroots it and check tires in parking lots and things like that around town. That's when they come across a blue truck that matches the paint sample. And it had three different tires that matched the treads at the scene. The catch? It doesn't belong to Matt Owens. That's who they've arrested. It belonged to a local junk dealer. The junk dealer says that they live out in the country and that on August 12th, they had indeed come to Nome for lunch. He came with his girlfriend. He even had a receipt from the restaurant to prove it. He says that the paint scratch on his truck happened when he pulled down that same quiet road that Sonia's body was found on later on that same day so that his girlfriend could go to the bathroom. What are the odds of that happening? It was definitely odd that he would have driven past Sonia twice on that road on August 12th and he hadn't seen her. But investigators don't have anything else that proves that this junk dealer had anything else to do with it. And remember, Matt Owens had already been arrested. That's when a crime scene reconstructionist joins the case. This reconstructionist was able to ascertain that it had rained on Sonia after she had been placed in the brush along that road. And in fact, it had rained on August 11th. It rained from 12 a.m. to 5 p.m. This meant that Sonia was killed within that window, 12 a.m. to 5 p.m. August 11th. The junk dealer was on that road August 12th. So this proves that the paint evidence, the tire tracks, and the junk dealer didn't have anything to do with Sonia's murder. And furthermore, it meant they didn't have to worry about Matt not having a blue car because the paint was just an odd coincidence this whole time. It almost brings me back to that moment at the beginning of this case with Donnie, where there's a quote that says, if this were the 60s, 70s, 80s, Donnie would have been you know, arrested for Sonia's murder. And if it were that same time period, this junk dealer might have gone to jail for Sonia's murder, a murder he didn't commit. So 
thank God that this happened in a time when there was advancements in other police investigative technologies. Thank God indeed, because it allowed them to continue their case against Matt Owens. Investigator Burroughs says of that point in the case, quote, right now, the case is all circumstantial evidence, end quote. They were still looking for, quote, the smoking gun that could tie Matt to the murder of Sonia Ivanov. That's when a woman comes forward and mentions that she and Matt had been dating that summer. Now, it was more casual relationship, and it was really only for a short period of time. But during that time, she and Matt went camping, and it just so happens they went camping the week after Sonia had been found. She said that one night, Matt stayed up late, quote, burning things, end quote. Police hear this, and of course, they want to head straight to that campsite. So that's what they do. They head the 70 miles north up to the campsite. When they get there, they dig up the fire pit, and guess what they find? They find remnants of Sonia's belt, remnants of Sonia's bra, and the eyelets from her boots. It was clear that he'd been burning her clothing. So there they had their theory. Matt picked up Sonia that night, possibly propositioned her for sex, got denied, murdered her for it execution style with one of the many weapons he had access to and readied in his squad car that night, then stripped her of her clothing, left her in that brush on the side of that road, took her clothing to that campsite, and burned it there a week later. The trial of Matt Owens for the murder of Sonia Ivanov began in the beginning of 2005. That first trial ended in a hung jury, though, so a second trial was set for October of 2005. It was also moved to a different location, Kotzebue, Alaska. On December 6, 2005, Matt Owens was found guilty and sentenced to 101 years in prison for the murder of Sonia Ivanov. He appealed in 2010 and again in 2015. The 2010 appeal was denied and the appeal in 2015 was ultimately dismissed. And as of July 2021, he filed an appeal for that dismissal of his appeal for post-conviction relief. It's not about Matt and his appeals for post-conviction relief, though. It's about Sonia Dora Nitkuk Ivanov. Her name lives on in the Sonia Ivanov bill that was signed into law in 2007. This law mandates a maximum sentence for first-degree murder to any officer who murders someone while on duty. And that's where we'll leave this episode for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram and TikTok, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. Go get your merch. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.